Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, Dick Tracy, inventor and innovator, talks about his contributions to the outdoor industry, including the invention of the plastic buckle in a world dominated by metal fasteners. Welcome back, everyone, to another History of Gear episode. Um, I'm excited to have two guests here today. Um, first, Dick Tracy. Um, how, how do I how do I introduce the the inventor of the plastic buckle? I mean, um, the inventor of the plastic buckle, among, among many other titles, I'm sure that we'll dig into, as well as uh, Jim Thompson, um, one of the founders of Wilderness Experience. Among again, someone else who has many titles and, and many. done many things <clears throat> in the industry. Um, but uh, I appreciate you both being here. And, and Jim, thank you for making the connection with Dick. Appreciate you both being here. So, we appreciate it also. <laughs> well, Dick, you can start out by saying you're talking to a couple of lucky guys. What? Why so yep. lucky? Hey, look, we're still around. <laughs> yeah, well, that still vertical and causing trouble. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. glad I, could, I we could get you both on on uh, for a call today. Um, but Dick, we're gonna we're gonna go back here. Um, we want to talk about your contributions, obviously, uh, to the outdoor industry and the industry in general. But I want to I want to go back to where it all began. Where where did you grow up? Where and then where did you where did you first get introduced to this thing that we call the outdoor industry? <laughs> I grew up in Chicago, uh, primarily, uh, and or the suburbs of Chicago. Um, I was a pre pre. Uh, baby boomer baby i was born in 1946 so i don't even i wouldn't even qualify for the raft the crap they're giving people anymore but um so I, I grew up in chicago um i i got introduced i would say to the um outdoor industry in more of a harsh manner i was in the army <laughs> i was in a, a air assault company in vietnam and so we were doing some like long-term camping, you might say, you know, we'd be out for months at a time living in the weeds. And so I was carrying what they called, and they still call, I think, an Alice pack. 
It was a military pack of the era. They still use them. And it was funny because they hurt. <laughs> you know, they, they were, you know, not easy to use. But I really got exposed by living. I, as, a, as a kid that grew up in the city of Chicago, um, my camping opportunities and outdoor opportunities were fairly limited you know it wasn't it wasn't something and then um ended up getting shot and spent a couple of years in the hospital close to and ended up in denver ultimately after a circuitous path ended up at what was then fitzsimmons hospital in denver colorado now closed but that exposed me to the outdoor industry like I never dreamed. I said, if I'd have known about this when I was younger, I'd have probably gotten a lot less trouble. But I remember it was it kind of, I can still remember it now. I'd, we were brought in at night. I was put on a, uh, a hospital ward facing the mountains and we were just jacked to be back in the country. And when the sun came up, I saw the mountains out there and it was like, Whoa, you know. So I said, when, when, and when they told me I was going to go, I was going to go to Great Lakes Hospital. And they were going to move you to Denver, Colorado, Fitzsimmons. I said, I am not a cowboy. You know? <laughs> but it worked out great because it really exposed me. We did a lot of camping. I learned to ski, some rudimentary, dumb rock climbing with no gear and stuff like that. But um, it was just it was like a, a Pandora's box that got open when you, there were so many things. I liked to fish. I, you know, did a lot of fishing. And so that was my real introduction. Well, uh, I'm curious about your experience with the, the military, military equipment. What, what was your thought on that? Because I know there's other gear pioneers out there, Jerry Cunningham in particular, who had strong opinions about the gear that, that they used. And well, turned that into into a company when they came home what what were your thoughts on the products that you were and the equipment you were given so it was built by the lowest bidder and it was it was stuff that was um like the hardware the just the adjustment the buckle buckles were thread through they were like a cargo tie down there were things of that nature because that's what always was used and that it had been used forever but the first thing i bought was a kelty pack because it had a frame, it, it was comfortable to carry at the time, even those ancient ones. That would have been in like 1968. So I'm dealing with prehistoric gear, but it was it was better than what I had. And um, it, it, the more I got involved and the more I was exposed, it, it, you know, I, I learned that I liked it. I ended up then... Uh, I got hired by a company by the name of Illinois Tool Works. They're, it was their Fastex division. And they made um, various components for industry, metal and plastic components. I'd been a tool and die maker before I went into the Army. So I had experience in, you know, creating things, making things. I had always been a I filed for my first, but I didn't file. I just protected my first patent. That was funny. I was thinking about first patent I ever uh, had or first idea that I ever had. I was about eight years old. 
and I'd gone ice skating on a single blade ice skate and twisted my ankle so bad. I kept thinking, there's got to be something better than this. So way back when, before they were ever available, I came up with training wheels that fit on the ice skate blade, you know, and I drew pictures of it. And in the end, in the old magazines, you would look at the back of the magazine and there was always a protect your idea, protect your patentable idea. And the trick was you wrote everything and you mailed a letter to yourself to establish priority, you know, so if it ever got, but it never got made right thing. But that was my first idea. <laughs> first one that I ever did anything with. But where, um, where did that come from? I mean, I fell down and twisted my ankle. I twisted my ankle. I was getting so bad. I could hardly walk. So out of need. <laughs> it had to be a better way. Out of need. But did you, did you learn to be someone that was a tinkerer, a maker? Where did that come from? Um, well, I guess if I really went back, uh, my grandfather, my grandfather was an Italian immigrant. Um, I learned to use tools with him. And then in my tool and die work, you're exposed to, you know, I, I, I love to make things out of metal and plastic. You know, I built my own wooden go-kart when I was uh, about 10 or 11, my uncle would give me a lawnmower motor. And also, I was a kid riding the bikes. I was driving around in my little go-kart, you know. Um, but I always like to tinker and do stuff like that. So I tell people I'm, I'm, a, I'm a semi-advanced tinkerer. That's what I do. <laughs> Did you, when you arrived in Denver and, um, and then it sounds like that's when you bought, bought your Kelty, is that right? Right, correct. Um, I mean, did you have any mentors? Did was there anyone from the business that kind of introduced you to these activities, or did you just no. go and climb? No, it was, climb it was a bunch of a uh, bunch of hospital patients, some of them half dead, who would go out and drive into the mountains. I ended up having a car. I bought a car. You drive into the mountains, go find a place along the South Platte River, set up fish. Bring some girls with you if you're lucky, boys if you weren't, you know, and it was a, it was a, a hanging out bunch of guys, kind of what it was. But we never got into uh, any serious other than just rudimentary hanging out. The thing that really put me kind of in touch with the industry, as we'd call it today, um, was the Fastex. I, I, I was, um, I started as a sales guy and I ended up after, I don't know, three or four years, they said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to create new things. That's what I want to do. I want to do stuff. I don't want to do the same thing all the time. I want to find. So I was made the manager of their product and market development. So at the time, and the numbers, it's kind of funny. I was tasked with finding opportunities that would produce $10 million or more in annual revenue. So that had to be, wow, that had to be 75 or four, somewhere around that area. And I looked at many things. I looked at the irrigation, drip irrigation, before it was ever even talked about in this country. Um, spent a lot of time in orchards and things going around and I liked it but the uh, ITW had a very strong relationship with DuPont 
they they were a large material supplier. And DuPont would, you know, in the interest of selling more nylon and Delrin, would try to find opportunities that would fit what we did. And there was a company in Sweden, it was called AB Fixed Fabriken, who had a line of plastic hardware, buckles and things like that, that really didn't fit the needs that we had in the country, in our country. But it was an excuse, and they, they obtained a license. I actually ended up going and hanging around with the boys in Gothenburg, Sweden. Lost my passport the first night I got there, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, the uh, And it was an entree. So we were trying to sell. The first part we did was a um, part we were targeting the uh, PFD industry. Because as you're starting to look around, for PFD industry was the first thing because there were a lot of them and they used a lot of product. But then as we said, wait a minute, the actual, and, and it was funny, you're, you're talking an era when, when that was booming, the whole outdoor industry, companies, you know, Jim and Greg Wildey and Lowe with those guys, there was a, a resurgence of interest and I think it was largely driven by a lot of ex-military guys, to be honest with you. Um, at least in my experience, you know, uh, that a lot of them were. And um, the opportunity to do things. And, and so some of, the, some of the hardware and some of the such was still a carryover. And it was a carryover from World War II or even World War I. You know, you would look at the adjustment features on things. <laughs> the the side release buckle idea came. I was with, um, it might have been a guy by the name long since passed away from low alpine called Tom Decker. And we were testing a, I think I showed you that pack. I don't have it with me, but had the, uh, adjustment, the tabler type adjustment, because the tabler buckles, the old metal, they slip. They always loosen. They always, unless you got the very high angle one, which didn't slip, but didn't adjust either. And we were crossing and I had, after I got home, I was in the hospital and I almost drowned going down the South Platte River. I had a cast on this left arm and I went, got, the guys were going by tubing. Now, I was a flatlander. I never really saw tubing before, right? So I said, wow, that's really awesome. The guy said, well, would you like to try it? I said, hell yeah, I would definitely like to try it. I got in the tube, dutifully holding the arm up and going along. And he said, when you get to the bridge, get off, because then it gets bad after that. I said, okay. And there was a little footbridge. And I looked beyond there, and it was not very bad or very smooth. That can't be this bridge. must be a car bridge get under the bridge and it turned out the two big boulders I saw up ahead was the beginning of a waterfall and that nice flat stuff went over about a 25 foot waterfall and I'm trying to keep this dry so I'm paddling away and then finally I said well the hell with it I got to get both arms in the water and I ended up going over the waterfall backwards and got I thought you have to get through all this stuff and drowned well I mean I got up out of there so it made me very aware of what drowning was like and we were out testing this and we we're crossing a, a tree. And the at the time, the waist belt buckles were thread through, you know, kind of old Kelty stuff. And I'm crossing this log, cross a 
pretty far down stream that was moving along pretty good. And I said, if I fell right now, I would drown before I got this backpack off. And on the way home, just thinking, what would you do? And it began, when you, when you look at what was involved, you have two hands operating. And I said, if you just brought your hand up, your natural position is to squeeze with your thumb and forefingers. And that was why I said, we got to take that and, and ultimately came up with the, um, the side release concept. Yeah. So that was the, that was the, the one real life experience, <laughs> but they, they provided, you know, they were a large company. They had great manufacturing capabilities and skills and they had the funding because you, you couldn't convince people, you know, to try to sell plastic buckles in those days was pretty hard business. <laughs> Jim, maybe, maybe this is a good time to pull you into this. Where, where were you during all of this and what was your experience with, with fasteners and, and, you know, hardware prior to plastic or the plastic buckles. I'm what, I guess, what was your experience? Uh, well, my background in the, in the outdoor part was with Dick Kelty. I started working for Dick Kelty uh, before Dick's pack was even made. I started in uh, the beginning of 67. Wow. And so I was just, just out of high school. And so a lot of my beliefs on equipment came because he, you know, he was a super neat person, but he was also just, you know, fanatical about talking about, you know, the thread count of fabrics and things. And so, you know, for years that I worked there, you know, that was my background and his belief on what type of buckles to use. I mean, he would not even use plastic zippers those days. Uh, do you remember that, Dick? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, so mine came from that end, but there were no other choices. I mean, the, the metal buckles that you could buy, uh, you know, there was like two or three different styles you could buy, and that was it. So it wasn't like something you could talk about when you started making equipment. It was the only choices. And you're right, there's stuff, a lot of those, it's probably World War One designs for... It truly was. And, it, and they actually worked better on old cotton webbing, I think. And then we all switched to nylon webbing. And so we were using buckles that were not really made for it. Uh, so it was a real real problem. <laughs> and, uh, and nobody had really even looked at even designing new metal buckles, which is kind of amazing that that didn't happen. Uh, especially for, I remember this for waste packs. Uh, Dick Kelty finally designed his own because there was lots of two inch seatbelt webbing available really cheap from all the auto companies. Right. And that would be great waste pack material, uh, waistband uh, bands, but there were no buckles that could hold a uh, seat other than a real seatbelt, you know, airline looking buckle. And nobody had developed even a metal buckle that would work well for that. So that's why, I mean, that was one of Dick's first things was designing in a metal buckle for two-inch rubbing. And then what what was the landscape of the industry at that time? Who are the players? Just maybe to set the stage for we, what, what well, was the industry like then. It, it was, uh, you know, as we got into the, you know, later 60s and early 70s, it, every, the people, there was a few older people that were still in business, uh, like Jerry Cunningham and those, uh, and Hall bars and a, and a few of the people that would be at the trade shows. Uh, and then the companies that were run by larger companies like Camp Trails, which did a lot of pretty good things. But the rest of us came in and we were all young. And the Camp Trails guys would show up at an outdoor trade show and they were all in suits. 
and you know we were in shorts and mountaineering boots and in the perfect look yeah. uh and uh and we were all you know we were all competing hard with each other uh but we were all friends uh in the early days the outdoor business the outdoor companies had no money and so even like at the trade shows the ski shop ski companies would run big parties and some other people would and we couldn't afford to do that so even though we were competing hard with low at the time we worked with low and with jansport and uh, with Sierra West, and we did our own party. It was a joint party. So all day long, we'd blast each other of how their stuff is no good. And then everybody would come to our party. And all our reps went out and sold T-shirts for the party uh, and to all their accounts. And so you could only come to the party if you had a T-shirt. And we sold the T-shirts for $10 a piece, which funded doing the party. So it was a really fun time. And I don't know, what was your first trade show dick I, I remember early ones but the uh the very first one well first wandered around it was the nsga show chicago which was the show at the time the, yep. you know hook and bullet boys the you know the the fishermen everybody was there mm-hmm. and skiers and but there were no separate so to speak there was no ski show there was no outdoor retailer they ultimately cannibalized the nsta show but that was the first one mm-hmm. and and it was so funny uh fast itw at the time they were not big about participating in trade shows you know they they had a you know product line we you know had a, a, a big direct sales force that went out worked with large companies because that was the only one that could afford the tooling and things of that nature. And so to get them to agree to going to a trade show was like, well, we did, we don't need that. We're ITW. Well, you do need that, you know, but the first one I was in the basement Mm -hmm. at the NSGA show. Okay. Right across from the guy with the, with the blow guns. And it was, it was (laughs) pretty funny, you know, and then we got some interest. And then the next year, I convinced them to spend money. And we had the booth where we were hammering. Yep. It was, that uh, turned the corner. Everybody hated was, it. <laughs> yeah, one of the best, best booths, Chase. Uh, uh, what Dick had is he had just big, it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is my mind losing it over 60 yeah. years ago. But you had a huge piece of uh, dry ice. And you put had the buckles sitting in the dry ice. And then you'd have people come with this big sledgehammer and try to break the buckles. We had, we had two things. We had a platform that was steel and I had a lead mallet. And that was when everybody equated is interesting at the time. Everybody equated strength with impact resistance. And a lot of plastics don't offer both. They might offer high impact resistance, but not much tensile strength. And, uh, not so nylon and Delrin were the two big materials at the time. And then uh, DuPont came out with what they called super tough nylon, which was an impact modified nylon. And when I had some parts molded for me in the sample shop, I thought, well, how strong are these really? And I put one down and I hit it with a hammer and it still didn't break and it worked. And I said, that's what people got to see. And so we had that built and then a cooler with dry ice in it to show that I'd have the metal hardware and the plastic hardware next to it. So I, I used to cross country ski at the time. 
And, you know, you take your hand gloves off and your hands are sweaty and you go to take a buckle off and sticks like, you know, the, like a light bulb. So I'd stick my hand down in there and lift it up. And then the metal parts would all be stuck in my hand. They'd fall off slowly, none of the plastic parts. But the next year was the, the banner year. Everybody that was anybody switched. You guys were really among the first. I got introduced to you by a distributor of ours. But you probably just reached back to the memories. John King. Oh, yeah. We, he was the webbing salesman. The webbing and webbing fabric distributor. Guy. And yeah. so we ended up, a California guy found him because we were looking for distribution. I said, if we're going to be selling this, we have to make it available. By the way, these people are used to buying stuff. And distributors were a big stocking distributor. So he was our first distributor in California, and he introduced me to you and Greg. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. You guys were my inspiration, by the way, to leave ITW and go start my own business. (laughs) Look at these young guys. I'm sitting here wearing these suits, flying around all over doing this crap, and these guys are hanging out with these pretty girls and going to these shows and stuff. I want some of that. <laughs> Looked at us and thought, yeah, they're not very bright. And if they're able to do something, this is pretty easy. <laughs> no, you guys had it going on. That's for sure. <laughs> do, do you remember? Afraid. That was, you, you weren't afraid to try new stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I remember that talking to, I mean, to Greg Law and stuff. The plastic buckles were a real risk and nobody wanted to do it. And you really had to make, you couldn't just make one. This is Greg's view is yeah, if we right. did it on. Cause I said, well, let's just do it on a couple packs and see what happens and not do. And he's going, nobody's going to believe in this. If we do it on a couple, either we switch a hundred percent or we don't do it. And that was a really, a, a move that I was against. And, uh, and it turned out to be the absolute right move. Yeah. <laughs> For everybody. <laughs> yeah. Dick, do you remember who, who was that first client? I mean, who was the first to really adopt the ear buckles? Well, the the earliest company <laughs> that began to use anything that was molded, and that was well before the time we're talking about, was a small guy, and the company name was Moran, M-A-R-A-N. I've never heard of them since. I don't know. They were very small, and they were making... Um, Pretty rudimentary day pads type stuff. And the the guy that started the company said, This is the future of buckles. It, look at they're better. And they weren't even the they weren't even the side release. They were the very first uh thumb release version, front release version. But it was um it was still a long haul after that because they were small. I think they made 800 packs a year or something. So <laughs> But can you can you talk through that evolution of the of the of the buckle again? I, so, just so I get all the details, um, you mentioned a, a company in Europe that was doing some type of plastic buckle. What was that buckle versus you know the innovation that you brought to the market? That that company was called Fix Fabrican, mm-hmm. AB Fix Fabrican, and they. For instance, in Europe, they were selling into the uh, PFD industry, mm-hmm. but the regulations in Europe for strength and durability, accidental release and stuff were not very stringent. So a part that they would sell uh, for 
a, a PFD, and they were—I think they were selling into um, a lot of um, like children's clothing and things of that nature, primarily smaller fasteners. I'm not sure if they're even still around, Vix Fabrican, but um, Walter Bangston was the guy's name, and he was a great inspiration because he was. He, again, was, you know, and it was his company, so he could do a lot um, to, to get away from metal. His big concern was weight, which, you know, if you're on a military pack where you have a lot of adjustment, weight begins to play. Or if you have a big technical pack with a lot of uh, gear and a lot of adjustment, it, it begins to play. But mine was convenience and uh, durability. And then we were forced by the uh, Coast Guard to get to get a Coast Guard approval. You had to meet certain strength requirements. Um, again, uh, would very seriously uh, look at accidental release because you don't want to, you know, reach for the guy's life jacket and then open it up and have him go to the bottom. That was really frowned on. But um, they were a, they were a catalyst. But then then it the the PFD industry was sort of finite. There were a few guys, they they made big numbers. They might have two or three on, on a jacket. The biggest one was the the big orange one that goes around your neck. It's called an AK-47, adult K-Poc 47. You know, and I think it must have been the 47th try or something. But they were designed to you could Throw, put an unconscious person on there, and it would upright. It would make them upright and get their head out of the water. It was a single buckle, but they were on. You know, every time you went and rented a fishing boat, they had six of them on there, so it was a big volume user. They were the big volume user, but ultimately then got into all the ski, you know, the, the water ski guys and turned up. But um, they were the and the, and the, by having something strong enough for them and durable enough and um the outdoor industry then just became a natural but they were very reluctant like jim said they're very reluctant about going to plastic of of any kind even like you know on zippers and that 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 changed for for me the thing that changed it was the booth hammering on them you know letting people we had guys we had a line when you, you know, trade shows, what do you want to do? You want to have a sort of a carnival atmosphere. Best thing you need to do is get people to stop. Everybody wanted to stop and hammer that part and make a big, big deal. Well, we're going to tie it down so it's going to have these strap. It. And then nobody wanted to buy plastic buckles. So I said they were made out of super tough. So we called them tough bucks. It was a, it was a name. It was a thing. It wasn't a plastic buckle. It was a tough buck. And so the the theme was in the, in the kiosk with the hammering part. I had a thousand dollars and one dollar bills, and I said, "Can you beat the buck for a buck?" And I'd let them hammer it. And if you could render it inoperative, I would give you a dollar. Nobody did. I gave away fifteen dollars to little kids. Guy would come with his dad. Or he, I said, "Oh, you gave it a good whack, buddy. Here you go. Give him a buck." But. We had line. <laughs> Jim probably remembers at the time there was a magazine called Soldier of Fortune. 
and they were at a lot of the trade oh, shows yes. and they had all these uh, mm-hmm. you know paramilitary guys and all these <laughs> they would bring this group of shaved apes in there and they would be in there whacking on this thing trying to break it and they couldn't and then that oh don't I can break it that guy can do it like and, and never <laughs> never broke one and it was it was like the the thing that turned the corner <laughs> so what year was that show god that had to be um let's see my guess 77 8 jim i was gonna say seven when was the um when was the drake party because that's the year it was oh that was was that 78 or 77 77 or 8 had to be one of those yeah Yeah. and so prior to this you have the the front release buckle comes out first right first and then side release correct the front release only was done in one inch size for the flotation market. Mm. Then when I came up for the, the other idea, it was just, the other one was three pieces. It had a slide bar to adjust and the other oh, thing yeah. was and simple and, and, and worked better. So were, was so your we hand in the up any front other release too? So Pardon? were you involved in the front release too? Was that I was, in fact. Yeah. Um, we, we looked at... You know, the PFD market specifically, and, um, you know, we were able to get the strength requirements that we wanted. And there were some people that use them as soon as the other one came available, because, you know, you had to assemble them. You had a male and a female and a slide bar that had to be all put together, whereas we eliminated that with the two piece bar. And had had the adjustment built in. Right, right. Well, so I, I did a little Google search, Google uh, patents. And how many patents do you have to your name? I saw quite a few on here. Uh, you know, I think uh, maybe 25 or six, seven, something like that. Domestic ones, something like that. Everything from I, buckles, cord locks, fasteners, web end clips, some shoe related things too. Yes. We met the... Uh, after I left, I ended up doing the uh, the first. But when I left ITW, my next goal was to have all the stuff we made was manually attached. You had to thread the webbing. You had to do that. And I thought there would be an opportunity for machine-applied stuff, things you could sew on. So the first thing I did after I left was the... Um, the plastic lash pad that replaced all the leather because the leather had a lot of rotten spots and so on. So I came up with a way, found a material that could be sewn through without degrading it. And uh, it was a big hit. Then people started using that and the company I did it with, I did it with a small independent molder who ultimately uh, re-licensed the idea to ITW and they still make it today. Various versions of it. So I like to bring up the cord lock because I think that's one of Jerry Cunningham's. Well, I, I don't know how many people are aware of his invention of the cord lock, and um, I, I like to see the parallels between his career and your career in a lot of ways. Spending time in the military, learning about gear through that, being in, coming to Colorado, um, that and was inventing it. inventing fasteners that really are game changers in a lot of ways. What? Can you talk a little bit about the cord lock? I, I think that's one of those products that's that's really special that sometimes flies under the radar. 
So Jerry had, he came up, I think, with the first barrel lock, right? Yeah. Very mm -hmm. first one of those. And I've, I've had, I don't know, I've done a number of different kinds of cord locks, but the one that was really the most successful was um, during, and I, towards the end of the time, I'd, I'd worked with ITW and then I, you know, started my own consulting business. And uh, first I started a molding business. Interesting experience when interest rate, prime rate was 20%. <laughs> but um, the, um, the, the whole, you know, the whole trajectory, I would say, when, when the, uh, I got involved in military projects and there was uh, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Desert Storm, I, probably Iraq and Afghanistan. And we got involved in uh, uh, doing a lot of work, did a lot of work in the uh, thermal and visual signature with, with night vision goggles. If you look at a black Delrin buckle, it shines. It's like the antithesis of what you want with night vision. So we did a series of products. Found I found uh, some additives that could be put in that would disrupt the uh, infrared, and you could look at them and they would blend in. But the the cord locks were jamming. They were they they would get filled with sand and they become inoperable quickly. I mean, so it was a big, it was, it was serious issue in that environment. And uh, <laughs> my solution was so dumb that it, it made me laugh, but it was, it worked and I was able to get a patent on it and everything and they still make them. But um, if you look at tubular, and there were, again, I had a lot of different types of cord lock stuff that I came up with. Some was sewable, some was not. And um, but the ones that the, the biggest issue when you're working with a large corporation, especially, is to get credence to spend money to do something new. The people that change that, I will say, but, and I actually spent some time working with them, National Molding Corporation. They're a small company relative to us. It was the owner was a guy by the name of Joe Ancher, and he was interested in the outdoor world. And they had a tooling system that allowed them to make at, in production quantities from smaller level tooling. It was a big unit tooling system, they called it. So he, he would come, and we were in the business for, I don't know, five, six years by then. And after I left, they got to be really the dominant player in that in that world they ended up overtaking itw in sales as well and every year he would come with a complete new line of product slight changes you know different shapes and that was a from the fashion side now you're as as the outdoor industry got more fashion oriented things you know things that were smoother were better and things that were clunkier so they did a big deal. And then he ended up selling the company to, um, I think they're Chinese people now. I don't know. I've kind of been away from it. He ended up then finding a Korean company to partner with. And now you had the, we, we were shipping from the U.S. And then some of the foreign divisions are, are 
Italian operation in Australia and they started making them. But um, it, it, it was, to me, it was initially driven by function, but ultimately fashion started to play a part for sure. For sure. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that decision to leave? You mentioned Jim being, being uh, your inspiration for leaving well, your own thing. So, but yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that and starting your own company and building a business? Well, as I said, I, they, they were my idols. Jim and Greg were my idol. They didn't even know it. I said, here are these guys. They're doing what they want to do. I'm doing some of the things I want to do, but not everything I want to do. And they're young. And I look at me. I'm At the time, I was probably, I was an old guy. I was maybe 35 or so. And uh, a big corporation is great in some respects, but they are um, very, they can be soul sucking. <laughs> they, they, can, they can take away the fun you're having by somebody making a simple decision that isn't the right decision. You know, stuff, I would run into things like tooling, for instance. If you're building a mold, you need to reach a price point. Well, it has to do with how fast you can make them and how much material is involved. That really boils down to, uh, oh, and if you're patented or not, all that. But when, when, when uh, one of the sizes had come up, I said, we need to be making, you know, eight, 10, 12 cavity molds. And they, they decided, no, they're going to make this four cavity mold. Well, that prevents you from making X number at a time. So your prices are higher. And I said, we, we need to be more competitive. And the, they acquiesced. And the guy who was the general manager at the time, his, his acquiescence was they would make a five cavity mold, not a four. They wouldn't do a six or an eight, but they were going to do a five, right? Which is, goes against every single thing that you would do to make a good mold. You, you, you have to have balanced numbers. You want two, four, six, eight, 10, 12. You know, you, you don't want three or four or five, I mean, you know, or seven. So those little things would build up. And then, you know, I'm good for about five or six, seven years. And then I really have to do something different. <laughs> so, so I got uh, Yeah. What, what was the name of your company that you went and started? Uh, well, I, I started a, a molding company first. Uh, that was the first deal. And um, that was a, um, a custom molder. So you were basically not, you didn't have product. You had somebody else's stuff you were making. And my goal was to make products. And the, the, the first thing I wanted to make was a um, tear gas gun for you know, personal protection. You, know, you, you, you would spray, and I built prototypes of it and everything else. And um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Guy's name, guy's name was Kurt. I, I, ran, I randomly meet this guy. He happened to be from Chicago. His name was Kurt Von Besser. And he came up with the Besser ski binding. That was his deal. But he was a very entrepreneurial, crazy guy. And he also made spray bottles of mace. 
he had he had fractional distillation equipment. And so I said, I've got a better idea for your mace. Oh, no, we sell a lot of this. But my idea was to take that tube, load it into the bottom of basically a fancy squirt gun. And then if you're going to, if you, a woman, right? When I did this woman's office, I thought she's going to throw me out. Um, I said, the very first thing that happens if you take out a spray bottle to spray and so a woman's going to use it for protection or something, everybody knows about spray mace. And so, so the first thing is they're going to put their hands up like this to protect their eyes. And I had this little kind of pistol looking thing. I still have the model actually. Um, and I said, now here, what if you had this? And I pulled this little gun, I stuck it in his face and people's universal reaction is this. When you stick a gun on somebody's face, they're going to do this. They're not going to do this, you know, but he loved it. He loved the idea and we started to tool it. And then, I don't know, he, went, he ran into some issues and then uh, I needed to get out of that partnership. I'll put it that way. It was a very difficult time, 1980. So prime rate was 20%. You know, you couldn't borrow money. You're a, a startup company with no history and people weren't that kind on uh, lending you money. So that was the that was why I got out of there. And then I started basically a consulting business. I said I can I know how to make things and I I know how to market things. I know how to find out what somebody's doing in their process and come up with something that they'd like to be making and selling. So I started Dick Tracy and Associates. And that was that was it. <laughs> and I've been involved in various partnerships since then you know now i'm a full-time loafer <laughs> <laughs> oh um i i've you know just got a couple more questions um yeah. but um jim any thoughts from you first before i i jump in <laughs> no go, go ahead <laughs> this is fun to hear some of these stories i didn't know a lot of this thing oh yeah you guys were you guys were my inspiration <laughs> I told you, I, and then, you know, John King, we talked about mm -hmm. John King used to always tell me, what are you doing working with this big company? You need to become a scholar of the dollar. That was his favorite. That was his catchphrase. And <laughs> you need to work for yourself. He would always tell me. And I finally uh, took him up on the offer. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, that was yeah, uh, great. Guy. The only thing good with the company, and I don't know if we are going to touch on this, but we have to, of the, uh, the party that Dick threw, uh, that's, <laughs> That's where having ITW behind it, uh, all of the rest of our businesses could not have afforded that party. Right, right. I believe that. <laughs> so I think I, I asked Dick about this when we we talked recently. He said, "Well, you don't ask me about it. Ask Jim about it." So, <laughs> Joe, I don't want to let any. I don't want to let any things out of school. <laughs> you, you know what? Uh, a few years ago, I was doing uh, uh, when I was going to. Uh, do a wilderness experience thing. I interviewed a bunch of old people on video, and one the, and the guy said, "Okay, I'll talk about the party, but this can never be made public." Uh, <laughs> and some of his stories, which I didn't know, went on during that party. But this the the suite at the well, the Draco. Correct me if I make any mistakes, but the Drake Hotel is ten stories Pent high. The penthouse suite at the Drake. Yeah. So the, the ITW owns the penthouse suite, and it's as fancy as you can get. And so. Dick got it for Greg and I. And so we went up there and I remember Greg going over and there was a guest book to sign. And Lee Iacocca had signed the two days before 
Yeah, right. Uh, and, and it was all like the top people from auto company. I mean, we knew the names of everybody in that book. <laughs> you know, that's what we did. And then uh, Greg went over and there was a, a liquor cabinet. Well, to me, it's the size of my condo. Yeah. Uh, and there's so like, you'd see a bottle of Jack Daniels and there'd be like 40 bottles behind it in a nice straight row. Right. And it'd be the next something. And it'd be a big, long row. And this place was huge. And so, uh, Greg invited some, and we were working with climbers then because they were the ones that we were working in sales. Sure, with. sure. So uh, he told them that, you know, they should come over to our suite and, uh, you know, have a drink and see us. And it ended up with, I don't know how many people, but hundreds. <laughs> and the I had a dinner that night. I couldn't come. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That was, I, yeah, I was, I was, was probably really in that show and I had, so I never got to go. Oh, well, the, the being on the top penthouse outside was outside the uh, one of the windows was a ledge like 12 inches wide. And I remember looking out and there are five people lined up on that ledge all peeing off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's amazing when you take a whole you know, a couple hundred people and give them all the free alcohol you could possibly ever have. <laughs> uh, it, it was a. Yeah, there's a lot of stories from oh, the people that were at that party. <laughs> yeah, and it was funny because. When I told him, I said, well, I've got some very important customers coming to town. I need the suite, you know, and they were like, that's who they, the guy, the I'm, guys at my level never even got to give it out. I said, this is really important. You're going to have to let me have it. And they checked. And like you say, Lee Iacocca, those are the kind of guys. You guys were actually officially the first hooligans that were staying in that suite. <laughs> and probably the last. They probably uh, learned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious, great Dick. Fun, uh, great fun for everybody, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know how you've how much you've kept up with um, kind of the fastener business today, um, but I'd I'd love your thoughts and and Jim, your thoughts too, just on kind of where the state of fasteners right now. Um, I don't know how many people are so energized by talking about fasteners. Yeah. <laughs> this group probably more than most, yeah. um, but I think it's an interesting business to have companies like Boa, right. Or Fidlock that's trying to do a lot. It seems like they try to do a lot with magnets and kind of interesting fasteners, but what what are your thoughts on the state of the business now? Um, Dick, I, again, I don't know how much you're, you're staying up on it, but. Um, you know, I, um, I'm right now. So it's just peripherally involved. I'll uh, if I happen to see something new and different, I always like that. Um, the uh, the the one trend that I have seen there was a I believe they were a German company initially that made a motorcycle buckle helmet buckle, and I see uh, um, in addition can. You have to look at the fastener as a cost relative to the whole product. So when you have fabric going for 20 bucks a yard and stuff, the fasteners really were a small part of it. And when you ran into multiples, then you then we could get content on the product. You know, it was looking how much do I have on a bag or whatever. But um it was always like an afterthought. It seemed, it, it, you know, like Jim said, there were, there was really nothing out there. Fix Fabrican at the time, although their stuff proved not suitable for our market, 
was a big deal. Now, dog collars even are plastic. A lot of dog collars now, which never could be. So there, it as I saw it when once it became um, acceptable. It went from being acceptable to being de rigueur. That's what you used anymore. You didn't, you know, you didn't use metal that was old and it didn't, you know, and, and we, you'd get over the, they, I would love, they, well, yeah, that plastic, it's going to, I'm going to smash that in the car door and it's going to be, yeah, so let's take out, let's take the one you're using now, let's go out and smash that one in the car door. See how that looks. That's going to be bent and won't be operable, you know, but it, um, it, it it changed. It's funny. It it seemed to change so many things downstream. You know, I used to try to get it into the infant industry. You used to have to put a kid, and I had young kids at the time that would be in a a high chair or something, and you had the two double Ds, you know, or two, a double D ring. You be you have to thread everything through, and we would try super supermarket carts. You had to lash people in and they wouldn't go to snap. And now I see them everywhere. I see, I laugh. I laugh when I look around, I see the amount of that stuff that's going on. And the, my end, the last stuff I worked on was more military stuff, which I liked because um, they were, they were very functionally oriented and, and they had some special problems that civilian stuff doesn't have. That was fun. But um yeah, it's uh, it is definitely changed, and I don't know of any new names. I know of National Molding, uh, Wu Jin Plastics. They're a Korean one. Uh, there's a Chinese company I don't know the name of um, that is really, I guess, doing the big numbers. Garment. Now you you look at the the juvenile industry loaded with molded stuff. Um, pretty much every industry loaded with molded stuff uh, unless you need a super super high strength like cargo tie downs and things like that who remained metal well it is very interesting that some of the you know a lot of the new packs are using buckles made out of metal now oh are they that, yeah my uh arctic pack you know uses and you probably know the name of this chase i don't but the ones that you can like slip through the little bit of webbing and then tighten it Mm-hmm. And they actually work really well, and I think they're light. And I'm not I've not sure. seen it. Interesting. Yeah. And some of the other ones you mentioned, Chasers. Yeah. Some of it is just pure style. It just exactly. looks looks Certainly cool. Got it's to be. Not yeah. as functional. Uh, but some of the those metal ones are actually really interesting designs. The oh. thing that I really don't like is all the different designs of plastic buckles today that I guess everybody wants to make one that looks different. And, you know, and when my brother was running uh, Adidas, I got probably 20 different packs from him. He used each one had a different type of buckle and some just don't go together. And I mean, some are just like stupid, you know, the designer said, well, we can't use that anymore. We have to make our own. That's not as good. Or the one I have on uh, my climbing helmet has the magnet with the idea that it clicks together. And then as soon as you lay it down, if it's in sand, it picks up all the little metal things and you can't use your buckle anymore. <laughs> it's impossible to clean. But it's so, look in a retail store, it sounds so cool. So yeah, I, I bet, uh, Chase, you're probably way more aware of some of these new ones that are, you know, are you a member of uh, the uh, Cariology, uh 
group. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's where those people actually get excited about buckles. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar with them. It's a, it's a website called Carryology, and it's people who just love everything packs. I think it's your kind of crowd. Carryology. Carryology. C-A-R-R-Y. Yep. Okay. And they, people are, you know, go back out. and forth and the packs cost 300 or $400. It's, you know, day packs. It's yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The prices have not, they've not been bashful on pricing. No, <laughs> actually, you know, just, I want to make that comment because I, I did it on some friends because they were talking about pricing. I took, uh, looked at our packs, North face and, and, and low from the seventies and in current dollars, they're way more expensive than most packs today. Really would be, you know, our internal frames would be around $450 to $500 today. So it's not like the prices have gone crazy. It's like everything has gone crazy. Yeah, it's like everything's gone crazy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to have to check out this carryology. That'll be kind of interesting. Well, yeah. maybe one, I guess, a, a parting question. And, and it's always hard to ask someone about how they look at themselves or their contributions, their, their legacy, but I'm going to do it anyways. Where do you see yourself fitting in with, you know, the, the history of the industry? How do you look back on your career and your contributions? Me or Jim? You. Oh, well. yeah. We, we, we've talked, I've asked Jim this question. Kind of a dumb guy who's been in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I was lucky. I was lucky to be, number one, I was lucky I was a tinkerer, and I was lucky I had the tools. You know, I, I couldn't have done it as an individual. I mean, I've, I've done, since then, I've had some other things that I did ma- manufacture and sell. You know, I had a thing, a zipper. The, the last thing I did commercially for myself was a, a thing that fit on zippers. Was called a Yankees, Yankees zipper grabbers. Because back when I did it, I'd been ice climbing and I had torn uh, my uh, my uh, pants and they were, you know, uh, Gore-Tex pants. And I had torn, I put the uh, pick end through and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm trying to take them off. And the zipper the pull tab on the zipper, which, which was like maybe a, a YKK, you know, Vislon type zipper. I couldn't, my hands were so cold, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't open them up. And I said, there's got to be something. So I came up with this little thing that would fit over zippers and clip on. And now, unfortunately, I sold that company. Now, because there was a time like when there were no plastic buckles, but there was a time when you used a zipper, you used a YKK, you used a Talon, and that, and if you wanted a custom pull, well, the charges were astronomical. Now that's not the case. Now there are, I met a guy, I was in Italy, uh, at, or I was in, uh, in, this is the number of years back, I was in Bratislava at a NATO show, and there was a guy that was making an attachment that fit over a zipper, and he said, he says, I based my whole business on you doing something with zippers. And he said, we made it. Now everybody has a little pull tab of some sort that they thread on and wipe up. But at the time, there weren't. 
So I sold a lot of them, sold them to the, uh, you know, gotcha, had them on their bathing suits and the front zip bathing suits. But, um, I, you know, I since I haven't been involved and haven't had a real reason, I really, I really don't look at it. I'm very interested in this karyology. My, my interest right now, and I, uh, I still have contact with ITW, um, because they pay me royalties on some things. And so I deal with them on occasion. But uh, I really think that they would profit by meeting you and seeing what they can contribute to your uh, desire. Your, they, I don't know what they have in the way of articles. I've, I've fished out, by the way, since I talked to you. My wife was smiling because box of stuff that she's been after me to throw away for a very long time now is now in the kitchen. <laughs> so we, we, we moved it from the garage to the kitchen. But I have, I, and I've got to just go through it, because when I looked at what you were looking for, documentation, paper documentation, and I, and I think, geez, I look at what I threw away. But I have this little pile of stuff that might be interesting. So I'm going to try and go through it, get some sort of organization, get the duplicates out, and see if it's something you'd be interested in. Dick didn't do a very good job. <laughs> His influence on PAC business, I mean, that's really huge. If you look back, I could tell PAC's made in the 50s because they're World War II materials and cotton webbing and stuff. And then, then Dick Kelty came along and said, we don't need to make frames out of wood. We can make them out of aluminum. And then there's a big gap. And when you look back now, anything made today could be made in those days, there's nothing. I mean, the fabrics are a little bit lighter, they're a little bit stronger. But if you just looked at it, it's no big difference. But the only huge difference on packs is they were all metal buckles and they all went to plastic buckles that were more functional. And I'm trying to think of other things since that stick guilty doing an aluminum frame. Nothing has been that big that you could just, I can look at it and know it's, you know, pre 75, pre 78 or something or after. And there's nothing else in there other than wood frames that you can really see that set of a line. So you had a huge influence on this. I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. But yeah, it was, it, it did, you know, people did make a change. That's interesting. They, they, they did, I, and I didn't really look at that, but the industry did shift at the time. Mm -hmm. It really did to yeah. lighter and, you know, somewhat better. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to look at this going back to some metalware because that's interesting to me mm -hmm. well i'm, I'm going to wrap the conversation here um and echo jim's jim's comments um you know this is why we're trying to do what we're doing is to recognize um your contributions to the industry and any student who goes through our design program needs to know what you did um and and your your contributions to the industry and so that's that's what we hope to do Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.